0: Okay, well, um, we're here to be encouraged tonight. Does that sound pretty good? Want to get encouraged? We need it, don't we? That's right. We sure do. Um, If I uh, had to pick words to describe the Apostle Paul, I'd probably think bold, courageous, fearless, determined, but... I'd never really think of fearful, discouraged, distressed, weak, but Paul was um, human like we are, great apostle, but he used the word distress uh, for himself, look in 1 Thessalonians 3.7 and 1 Corinthians 2.3 you might be familiar with, Uh, he came in weakness and fear and much trembling as he came into Corinth, and that's really uh, right after he had been to Athens, and uh, that's where we just are coming out of, going into Corinth. And you think of that Corinthian letter, and you learn a lot about not only that city and the people that were there, but um, Paul himself and where he had been and uh, what he's going to do. You know, we consider him to be a giant in the faith, but yet he had he had struggles. He had emotions just like anybody else. You know, he's a he was a human. Uh, although he he definitely walked by faith and he trusted in the Lord, but there are times when uh, people, you know, they have their, their times where they, there's a, the struggles come, uh, even emotionally. Um, but you, you think about Paul as um, it led up to the time as they were on this missionary journey and uh, as he's getting ready to go into Corinth, he'd been an Asia Minor, and uh, he wanted to go into Asia and you might remember Bithynia, and uh, he was actually uh, told that the Spirit of Jesus did not permit him to go there. That was way back in uh, Acts 16. There was the Macedonian man, and uh, he told him, come over here. And uh, we know that he had gone to Philippi. You remember Philippi? Well, things went there pretty good in the sense that you have, um, uh, you have some people saved there. A church starts. You have uh, the women that were meeting uh, by the, uh, with the, the waterside there, and um, things like that is good. But he also was falsely accused. Uh, he was unjustly beaten, and he was thrown into uh, jail. Uh, he had he was put in stocks, and we know that uh, he left there, went to Thessalonica. Of course, we know that um, a short time there, and along come the Jews, and they raise themselves in an uproar, and he has to flee, and he goes to Berea. Goes to Berea. You have the noble Bereans there. They check out the Scripture. Same thing happened there, and he is rushed out of town again, town after t- city after city. Uh, he is being chased, and he's fleeing. And wound up fleeing to Athens. Um, Athens, uh, being the cultural city that it was, he was able to um, present the gospel there. Uh, if you'd go by numbers, maybe there really wasn't uh, success by numbers. Um, but there was success. There were there were some people that did follow after he preached that. But uh, there was a place that was really always ready to uh, to hear the next philosophy and the next bit of wisdom that came, and, of course, they kind of laughed him out of there in in some ways, I guess you could say. But um, it's 50 miles to Corinth, and uh, that's where he's going from there. Now, if you have your maps, (laughs) maps in the back from Genesis to the maps. If I had my... Actually, I was kind of working on it earlier, and I kind of forgot about it. Um, I was kinda of, and I wound up losing my spot on there. I could look up history, but it'd take up a little bit. But uh, if you if you see Italy there, Rome, then you have over to the east a little bit there. You will see what is Greece, and hanging down there, you, you should be able to see Corinth and Athens, yeah. and uh, that's about a 50-mile distance. Um, before you get to Corinth, there's an isthmus there, and uh, I think you're supposed to pronounce it isthmus, right? Isn't that the way to do it? But if you spell it out with that, pfft, it sounds like you got a you have a tooth problem or something. Isthmus, you can't even say it. <laughs> sounds like those uh, some of those kids that are like five years old. They're talking isthmus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But. Um, it's kind of interesting because that means it's quite a, a seafaring place. Um, anybody that's traveling at all, east to west, west to east, whatever, um, probably uh, might, might go this way. It's quite a commercial crossroads. And um, ships would go, uh, would go around, if they wanted to, uh, around that Greeceian area and where Corinth and Athens is, and you have to go out of your way Um, So, you have this little isthmus. It's about five miles wide. You have the water on one side, water on the other. And um, ships could go to one part and then stop. And either they would, people would then take the stuff off of one ship, put it on the slaves' backs, march about five miles onto the other side where there would be another boat they could get into and then take off. You'd save a lot of time. And uh, then they got to where they um, put wheels uh, somehow underneath the ships and they were able to roll them across that little land piece onto the other side. And so why didn't they just go ahead and build a, a canal, right? You know, you have the Panama Canal. saves a lot of miles there, right? Well, um it was actually started by uh, uh Nero. Uh he didn't finish. Um it was somewhere around I think in the 1800s that they finally had a canal. Um uh, but anyway, uh, it was that's that's quite a place there where you have people traveling from all over there's uh, like 200,000 people that lived there. So that was a big city at that time. And uh, we know that it was a city that was um, probably the most immoral city there was in the world, although any place is going to be very immoral. I think of United States. I think of uh, right now you, you had the, the Fat Tuesday happening in New Orleans <laughs> last night. And uh, then, of course, you, you think of other places, uh, Las Vegas and... Uh, Wow, you just go on and on. You can name one city after another, and they're all evil and wicked, you know, and, and even where we live, you know, it's kind of evil and wicked. <laughs> Unless people are of Christ, they you're going to have uh, sin. But uh, this was uh, immorally um, just about as bad as you can get. They had the uh, Temple of Aphrodite where there were a thousand prostitutes and they were up on this Acropolis where they had uh, the temple built, and at nights they would go down and do their trade. And um, of course, you had uh, the seafaring people and people just floating in and out. And so, the Corinthian eyes uh, really is what that was. That means to to be immoral. Uh, you come from Athens. You in chapter 17, it's a very um, cultured city, an intellectual city, a city of information. Um, of course, I'm sure it was the Bouch too, but it was a city of learning. And then you come to Corinth, and it's called Sin City. And uh, I looked up Corinth earlier on the uh, uh, internet, and they had a picture of that sign. That first, it looked like Las Vegas. So what's that sign doing there? Remember, it says something. It's fabulous. Anytime you think of Las Vegas, always have that picture, right? You've seen it. Mm-hmm. And down below this, it said instead of Las Vegas, it said Corinth. <laughs> so you know comparing that to that but that gives you an idea uh it's uh, it's the, the vice there was terrible but a lot of traffic it's a bridge of greece and um anyway um a lot of people there a lot of great opportunities and here's uh paul coming into it and um things haven't been going too well in a lot of senses for paul it has but yet when you've been ran out of one place to another to another and being in jail and, you know, having stocks that you're put into, you gotta think, you know, boy, this is, this is hard. It's really tough. You really put yourself into that, into that place. And so here he is. Um, imagine this kind of change where he's come from. But it's also a political city. Uh, Corinth is a political city. It's like a provincial capital of the province of where it's at. So a lot of things going on, and God has His people there. He has the elect, the elect who are not saved yet. They're elect, but they haven't been saved. You're elect before the foundation of the world, but in time and space and matter, that actually happens. And so He has His people, and He's going to choose. He's already chosen His believers. Paul has to go out and uh, look for the jewels in that cesspool. <laughs> so. Um, so it is, I think it is with us too. You know, we uh, we um, always looking for the, the jewels that, that God has or people we can help edify. Uh, God has people there that He's prepared their hearts. He is preparing them. They have seeking hearts. And whenever that gospel comes out into this terrible place, rotten sinners as they are, as they are everywhere and, and down through the ages, that's just the way it is. People need the Lord to doesn't matter what they've been into. Um, and, of course, we know the people in Corinth have been into a lot of things. As such were some of you, as Paul mentioned, as they were effeminate and homosexuals and all the wickedness that went on with that. But Corinth is uh, something that is used by God in a huge way. Uh, not only did Paul write First and Second Corinthians, as he wrote to them, uh from there he wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Uh, He wrote Romans. And so it was back to the Corinthians that he wrote 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So there's a lot uh, that is stemming off from there. So when we look at 1st Corinthians chapter 2, we're going there just before we turn into our Acts passage, aren't we? And he says in verse 1, When I came to you, brethren, as he he writes back to them years later, "I, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. Where did he just come from? Athens. Proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The gospel. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, like in Athens where they persuade people by their man-made philosophies, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So he's relying totally on God's Spirit. And that's the only thing we can really rely on anyway, isn't it? It's God's Spirit. Anytime we rely upon ourselves. So in, in himself, he knew that he, as educated as he is, and as great as Paul is, was really weak. But I I think there was physically probably some weakness there. And, um, you know, you think of that trembling. Who knows what all was going through uh, some of his thoughts. Uh, But he says, So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So he came in it relied nothing but on the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And, um, you know, it's possible. Some people say that uh, there could have been a little bit of discouragement there you know there there can be times in a, in our in our lives just for a moment or two right <laughs> we can be discouraged um, can't really necessarily say that dogmatically but i'm saying i i think he was weary you get chased halfway around the world from people it uh, and and you keep getting dogged it, it is going to wear you out and uh you know as much as he was persecuted all throughout his uh you know evangelistic and missionary tours that he that he took. He uh he knew that he, he could only count on God. Well anyway, before we uh, get into the word here, let's uh let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for the encouragement that you give us when we need it the most. And we get our encouragement um from you. We get encouragement from others and fellowshipping with others, and from prayers from others, but we know that it ultimately comes from you, and um, when we go through um, different things, we, we just have to look to you and uh, count on you that you are going to do what you desire and what you please with us to make us more like you. So help us uh, look at this scripture and uh, to be changing always uh, to that very image of Christ. Amen. Uh, he gets some encouragement uh, from some friends. Uh, they're new friends that that we get started off with. Let's uh, take a look at this. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, we already covered that part, didn't we? That was our introduction. Okay. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So we'll look at the first uh, set of uh, friends that are mentioned here in this chapter. And we uh, kind of read our First Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, and and the way that he came as he came in preaching the gospel and going to the synagogue and such as he always did. He meets Aquila and Priscilla. They're from Rome, and uh, they uh, have definitely Jewish descent. Uh, The persecution had broken out in Rome. Uh, There was um, quite a ruckus happening. And so Claudius, the emperor there, just shipped them all out. Got rid of it. And that, by the way, could have been Christians along with that. If they were Jews and Christians, as far as the Roman world is concerned, they were all the same. If you're Jew, you're Jew. You just have uh, other religions, it it didn't matter. Uh, They were not uh, separate. So uh, a lot of Christians who were Jews were being booted out too. And uh, it's interesting, before Claudius, um, Tiberius tried... to to do that too, to rid uh, the city of the the Jews. He took 4,000 Jews. It wasn't as many as Hitler did with his 6 million that he did, but he uh, really sent them to a country that had a plague. (laughs) Sent them to go get sick and probably die, hoping they'd all catch it and and die. So, you know, they were unpopular in in Rome. And uh, that was uh, in 39 AD that Claudius banished the Jews from Rome. We know that historically. So that gives us a a time frame. Uh, Later on, there was an historian in 120 A.D., long after the New Testament had been written, a historian uh, by the name of Suetonius. Um, He got some information on Claudius and such, and uh, so he started writing some things out. And he, he wrote, As the Jews were indulging in constant riots, at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius banished them from Rome. You hear the word Crestus? We don't really know who Crestus is, but I think we have a really good idea. Christus, Christ, Messiah. That's Jesus. There could have been a man by the name of that, but historically, nobody can trace this Crestus. But there, in Rome, there definitely were outbursts of anger from the Jewish people to the Jews who had become Christians. And it was over the matter of Crestus or Christ or Jesus. So, uh, Claudius sent all the Jews out because they were rioting probably because of the issue of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So, there were riots. And we know how the Jews hated anybody who became a Christian anyway, especially their, their own kind. So, that's what the issue could be not dogmatically saying that, but it's a very, very good possibility. You look at the historians that write about this, and uh, many of them agree on that, so it's kind of interesting. They were kicked out of Rome. Aquila and Priscilla are uh, two of them, uh, and I tend to think that they were probably Christians already when Paul had met them. Uh, we don't know for sure, but really good indication there, uh, the way that um, he, you know he meets them. He doesn't even mention that he had even baptized them in Corinth. He doesn't. He doesn't give them a, a really a, a notice in that sense. But it seems like they were very well aware and adept at um, the teaching of Christ. Of course, if you'd been sitting under Paul, <laughs> I think you, you too could have uh, been that way. God uh, used, I think, this anti-Semitic command an edict that the Jews leave Rome, God used that for Paul to run into Priscilla and Aquila. And we see a lot of Priscilla and Aquila uh, throughout the rest of uh, the New Testament. I mean, in the sense that they ministered at Ephesus and uh, they had a, a house church. We know they're in Corinth here. They go back to Rome, um, a house church there. So um, what a key role they played. And they happened to team up with Paul for just a little while there in, uh, in the city of Corinth, of all places. And when you know a sovereign God, and when you know how he operates, when you are kicked out of your home, you tend to be... wouldn't you be discouraged a little bit? <laughs> or at least down a little bit? But, you know, when you look at it from God's perspective... You say, well, God has something in mind. Always has something better in mind than we can even imagine. But at the time, it can look terrible. What's God doing, right? I can't wait to see what God is doing next. And so, we can really be positive and upbeat even when things don't look so good. Because right around the bend, God has something else. And you know, it's kind of funny when you look back at things, you can say, huh, I wondered what He was doing back then. Matter of fact, we we probably didn't even. We're, what's going on? You know, we don't even put God in the equation. But then we can look back and we say, ah, maybe that's some of it. We don't know the whole story behind it, but we can see little bits and pieces and say, that's interesting how God has done. It. I was talking with Eldon earlier how he was able to, you know, just. I said I used a nice word to retire, and he said I didn't retire; I quit. <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh about that one. But to be able to do that and see how the Lord was able to make way all that time—I've heard this story a few times, but isn't it interesting? You look back on it, and you know, at first you wonder, "Well, how how is this going to come out? How's this going to work?" And you see, you know, you look back, you see oh, God had this in mind, in this mind, and it just—you know—when you trust in the Lord. It's really a nice thing, isn't it? And uh, he's a providential God. Um, he, he happens to run into them, and there they are. They're kind of living together, working together. They're uh, tent makers. Uh, some even take that word tent makers. It's, it deals with also leather uh could have been dealing with with the tents but also he might have done some other things with leather whatever it was wherever he went if he needed to fall back on something he had a way to do that and of course back at that time that uh, could have been something that really helped out tremendously so there they are together uh, they later go with Paul to Ephesus and they in 1 Corinthians 16:19 uh we know that uh, they have a church in their home um they're appreciated by all the Gentile churches. Romans sixteen three through five mentions them. So we get a lot about them in just in just a few sentences here and there. Um, matter of fact, turn to 2 Timothy four nineteen. It's funny, at the end of particular epistles, Paul will mention certain people. Second Timothy four nineteen. He says Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. He mentions Erastus remained at Corinth. But um, there he mentions them to, to Timothy. Greet them. You know, Timothy is like, uh, was that um, at Ephesus, right? So, um, God is um, working his way, bringing the right people at the right time and when Paul runs out of personal funds, uh, he just starts making tents, has support there. He worked hard. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he wrote the Thessalonians from Corinth. He says, you remember, brethren, our laboring night and day, because we wouldn't be chargeable under any of you. We didn't want to take your money. Uh, we uh, we were able to take care of ourselves. We preached under the gospel of God. He says I didn't want to freeload off you, so I I work night and day, as he mentions to the Thessalonians. And of course, that's what he's doing in Corinth here for a little while. Um, not very long though, but he has these friends that he that they meet. He stayed with them. They have the same trade. They're working. They were tent makers. And then in verse 4, he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And we ran into that many times. He's reasoning, taking the scriptures, taking the ones that show that Jesus had to suffer and die and then resurrect, go through all those passages that they would be familiar with. And uh, this is how the church is going to get born in Corinth, uh, amongst one of the worst cities in the world that uh, was known at that time. And so it doesn't matter where we're at. Um, God's people, His church, can be planted and um, make a cesspool smell like a rose. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting, too. Historians say that a lot of times a Jewish synagogue at that time, whatever your profession would be, you would sit together with those people uh, to whatever your trade would be. Like, you might have all the carpenters over in that area. And you might have the bricklayers over here. And you might have tent makers over here. And it's possible that that might have been the way that Paul would have met Aquila and Priscilla. And uh, maybe they're kind of doing the same thing as Paul does when he goes to the synagogue. Um because they were very adept at, at the word anyway, but that's that could have been how they met. Maybe they met because they saw it each other made the tents. We don't know. Um, but uh, I think that's interesting that the historians would mention that. Uh, here you'd, you'd have the artists over here, musicians all over here. <laughs> They'd be in different areas. So that, you know, if you ran into somebody, that was something in common. So uh, at any rate, uh, I'm sure that they went to the synagogue too, because... Uh, what a great opportunity to share the gospel. Well, that's the new friends. That's This is where he first meets them, of all places in Corinth. I don't think it's by accident that God had them meet together and it took a driving of out by the Caesar to get them there where they were at. That's what God used. So, anything that looks bad, God works for good. How about his old friends? Silas and Timothy. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. uh Timothy, Silas. They had been with him before on this journey, and it's it's very well possible they met somewhere in Athens and Paul and then probably decide, hey, we need to you need to go out and go to some of the other places where you've been, you need to go out there in Macedonia for a little bit and touch base. So they come back. And they meet in Corinth. Um, 1 Thessalonians three six. But now when Timothy came from you unto us, and he's writing to Thessalonians, so that's where he had been, in Thessalonica. So they'd been there. He brought us good tidings of your faith and love and that you have had good remembrance of us always and are ingrated to see us as we all sort of see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress in Corinth. Huh. So, they come. he he wrote them. And of course, later on he's going to see them and we see them in Acts 18.5. There they are. So, they bring an encouraging word And um, they're co-workers for the cause of Christ. And I think it's amazing that when we're saved, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. And God designed this body for the members to become one. To know each other, to work, to minister together. And boy, do we desperately need each other. Yeah, but that's what God designed this amazing thing called the church, and where these two or three come together, and and more than that, it's a wonderful thing because God has um, ministry in mind and being prayed for one another and bearing one another's burdens, and just to know that people are praying for you, uh, I mean, really means a lot. How would you like to be a lone ranger, just out by yourself? Paul didn't operate that way. He had people around him all the time. And uh, it's a great encouragement, I think, to anybody, anybody that's ministering, to see God's people laboring together. And so you can imagine, hey, hey, Silas and Timothy, guess who I ran into? Can you imagine that? You've got to meet Priscilla and Aquila. I mean, these are dear brothers and sisters in the Lord. I I want you to meet these brothers here. (laughs) What a great thing. I mean, this is quite a cast that are right here in Corinth. And what's really good about it now? Paul gets to turn it into a full-time ministry because Paul, or Paul knows Silas and Timothy. They can help out not only ministering, but maybe as far as the money and the finances are concerned. You know, so he really needs to spend more time in ministering there. He'd do it on when the Sabbath. Now he has every day to do it because there are enough people that are interested, whether he's in the synagogue or not. And by the way, I think he's worn out, he's welcome in the synagogue because the next verse comes up. And here we go again. Matter of fact, in verse 6, uh, they resisted and blasphemed, and he shook out his garments. What did Jesus say to the disciples? Um, shake. Right. Exactly. And that's what he's doing here. He says, okay, I'm not welcomed by the Jews here. I'm going to turn and put all my time now onto the Gentiles. And that's really who what he's designed for. But he still will continue to go to Jews, but that's not his main focus. He's going to go to the other ones. They, um, they don't want to hear him, so uh, they get really angry. Uh, they resisted. They blasphemed. And... He says, "Your blood be upon your own heads." I'm clean. You know, I've I've given you, you what you needed to hear. You don't want it. Oh, bad. That's bad for you. I'm going to the Gentiles. Verse seven. Then he left there. I think this is really fascinating. Now, he's, not only does he get encouragement from his new friends and his old friends, and remember, he came into Corinth with fear and trembling. He gets encouragement from some new Christians. Verse seven and eight. He left there went to the house where did he where did he leave well I guess the synagogue <laughs> He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus a worshiper of God and I love this whose house was next <laughs> to the synagogue Do you like that God <laughs> had his elect Person live right next to the synagogue. He's no longer welcome in the synagogue. Who cares? He's right there. Anybody that wants to talk to Paul, they know that. Oh, that's easy to find. Yeah, he's right there with now. Titius Justus is a Gentile, but he's a worshiper of God, which we've seen quite frequently. Which means he's had contact with uh the Jews he's had contact with the word of god and he actually worships the one true god he's not fully jew he's gentile but he uh he definitely has an interest in uh, who their god is and um uh, paul has been facing some strong opposition and god just is so gracious in bringing people to salvation Including this man living next door to the synagogue, I find that so fascinating. Look in First Corinthians one fourteen. Isn't that, isn't that like God? <laughs> he's um, talking about the ones he's baptized. He doesn't even remember all the ones and. I thank God and I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius uh, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I I don't know whether I baptized any other. You know, it's neither here nor there. Um, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Anyway, you got this guy by the name of Gaius. And it's very possible, uh, many of the writers and commentators say this, Gaius is this um, Gaius Titius Justice, later on, as, as uh, he is later called that. Look in Romans 16.23. Very possible. We don't get all the ins and outs of everything. And, but, uh, it says in verse 1623. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Um, a lot say that uh, him being the host, that's where that uh, they now set up the ministry, right from the the house that was next to the synagogue. Uh, then he left there and went to the house of a man, um, and it could have been more than just going there for one day. Uh, could have been kind of making a little bit of a headquarters, really. Um, But the next verse is just as fascinating, maybe even more fascinating. Crispus. We were talking about Coco Crisp a while ago. The ball player. And the cereal. Is that cereal? Coco Crisp? Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, and that's Christ with all his household. Sound familiar? And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. <laughs> now, it's not only the, the the synagogue, the guy that was there, that was the Gentile who becomes a Christian. Now, the leader of the synagogue becomes a Christian. And not only him, but his whole household. Wife and whoever all is in the house there. Now, that is really amazing. What's going on in Corinth? <laughs> What's going on at the synagogue? Can you imagine the Jews that weren't turning to Christ at this time? How mad they would have been? They have to be getting upset. But then the Lord has His way of keeping things in the way that He wants. Um, and it says many of the Corinthians. Now some of these guys are the ones in 1 Corinthians 6. Chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. If if that's their practice, if they continue to be that way, they are not entering into the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, "...such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified." But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Many of the Corinthians that are right here in verse 8 were the ones who were the effeminate, the homosexuals, the drunkards, the revilers, the coveters, idolaters, adulterers, you name it, right? The problem is, it's not so much the actual sin, it's the nature of man. But when you see somebody living that lifestyle and come from that background and that angle, which most of the Corinthian church, or many of them, that's the background they came from. They were from that city. And we know the culture of uh, a nation, a city, can rub off on everybody there. And even Christians. And some of them were battling some of this old lifestyle. And Paul uh, uh, you know, of course, he renounces that as he writes through First Corinthians. In every chapter, he addresses problem after problem after problem. Look where they came from, and they were still battling with a lot of that stuff. It was hanging on, but many of them were were really true believers. And he says, if that's your lifestyle and carrying on, then you're, you're you may not even be a Christian, as Paul says. But so he has. Titius, justice! What an encouragement that is! And then Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, what were what were the people thinking? I I imagine because the leader of the synagogue becomes a Christian, that the people that came in there had to go up and question him, and he said, "Well, look, what?" And he starts using the same scripture that Paul mentioned, and he shows that to them that this Jesus is the Messiah. This is the one, and so many of them that come in the synagogue now are, are believers. And they're having church right next door. <laughs> so if the synagogue is still doing its thing, there there it is. Um, and and then we see encouragement not only from the new uh, the new friends, the old friends. Now we see it from new Christians, and in seven and eight, that's who Titius Justus or Gaius Christius Justus possibly Crispus and many of the Corinthians. And then we get encouragement from God. So we get it from people. We get it from friends, old and new friends. We get it from new believers. Isn't it encouraging when when you see somebody come to Christ? I mean, it really lifts everybody up, doesn't it? But encouragement from God is where it all comes from. And God knows what Paul's been through. He knows where he's been. And he knows where he's at right now. He knows what's happening. God's doing all this thing. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by vision. So he gets something directly right here. The Lord just speaks to him. Do not be afraid any longer. What does that mean? If he's been afraid any longer. Is it possible that the Apostle Paul has been afraid? Is it possible? Well, if he's telling him not to be afraid any longer, what does that imply? That he has had some periods of being afraid. I think if we were all admitted, we would say there have been times when we were afraid. The Lord comes along with these angels sometimes when they make an appearance. and What do they say? <laughs> be not afraid. afraid. Why well, they're looking at this, you know. But anyway, they, they could have been afraid because who knows what kind of vision this is. But anyways, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking. Keep preaching. And do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city, elect but not saved. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Isn't that good? All that hassle that he's been getting, and now he gets a time where he is able to do it without a lot of resistance. Anytime you preach a gospel, there's going to be resistance, but I think this is just when Paul needed it, the Lord appeared to him in, a, in this vision, encouraged him. And, you know, I think John Calvin said this, a lack of fear is the chief quality needed by a preacher of the gospel. A lack of fear. Must be encouraged, must be strong in the Lord. I think one of the temptations that preachers face sometimes is um, to become people-pleasers rather than God-pleasers. And, uh, of course, there, there shouldn't be just controversy being drawn up, but sometimes when there those difficult truths come up in God's Word, we don't want to waffle. We must bring it forth regardless of what people uh, may think sometimes. Um but he says don't be afraid you keep on speaking don't be don't be silent what did jesus say to the disciples lo i am with you always even unto the end of the age always he's always with us always even though we don't see the disciples saw him and then they didn't see him and he says i'm still with you i'm still with you and boy did that ever happen here Uh, That is just great encouragement. Uh, I am with you. The Great Commission. And um, what is it? In Isaiah chapter 43. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, difficulties, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. What a promise. Knowing that the Lord God is with us where wherever we are, whatever we're going through, it's an unspeakable comfort. Now you can say, well, wait a minute. We all die. Some of us have to go through persecution and Paul did. and Look at most of the apostles. Look at all the other apostles. And you can say, wait a minute. What? How does that... What's that mean? You're not going to have any harm. At that time that he was going to minister there in Corinth, he had no harm. Sure, there was going to be harm after that. There was going to be some dangers. But, you know, uh, whenever the Lord says it here, he, he he does mean that. And even he'll get them through the time it is until it's time to be taken. However that may be. But he's always there. As a matter of fact, if he takes us, that's even a graduation, isn't it? We can't ever lose. And even if we do have to suffer a physical persecution, we know it's still going to work out for good. Yeah, Barbara. When you were talking about that persecution, it reminded me of seeing on the news last night those 12 Coptic, Coptic Christians. Christians that were beheaded. It showed them right before, and many of them were, you could tell they were praying mm-hmm. right before. Yep. They to be with the Lord boy, is that ever real. Is that ever real? It's, it really should be clicking in our own heads. Um, but, you know, God God was with them, even in yeah. in their death. Yeah, it would have been so easy to renounce their faith at that point in time and to live, but they didn't. Yeah. He gave them that extra strength that they needed. The Unspeakable comfort. so. repeats itself, though quite possible that at least one of those who did the beheading will be witness to and notice that there's a true God instead of exactly Paul would attest to that too, wouldn't he? <laughs> you know, all throughout church history we've heard of those stories. So we we never know exactly what all God is doing when when that happens. That's but he, he does preserve uh, it's not a general promise that's applied to every situation. Um, Paul suffered the attacks, but God promised his protection until the time that uh, you know that he wanted to get. But he got him through all those situations, no matter what, until it was time to to be taken up. His servants are killed because of their witness, but no one can touch any of us unless uh, unless it be God's purpose for that to happen. That's, I think, what what he's really meaning there. Nobody's going to harm you, unless I can turn this into the purpose that I have desired, and so that will be too. And so we're we're under just great hands all the time. I better stop there. Boy, we just keep going. But uh, I think that's. Uh, I think this is quite encouraging when you when you look at this of how God was using all this as they ministered. God does give us encouragement all the time, doesn't He? We need it. Thank you guys for being a part of this because you don't know how much encouragement you are to me. And I know you guys would all say it about each other. You know, that that works all the way around. Uh, Thank you for being a great witness. Keep growing in the Lord. He has some more tests for us. Keep trusting. Eldon, could you, uh, could you close us in prayer? Father, we thank you for the words we hear, for what you have been recorded, how it ministers to us to always be faithful to you and know that you are in control and in charge no matter what happens to us. <clears throat> we commit ourselves to you now for this night, this day. Lead us and guide us, we ask. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I read that John Calvin once said that one thing we owe God is to never be afraid of anything. Never be afraid. So true. I read more than John Calvin I too, but I did not remember